Hello and welcome. This is the Boundless Book Club, but not as you know it. Because normally this is where we'd say you're here with Annabelle, Ahlam and Andrea, but not today. Today you are here with Ahlam (laughs) and Annabelle and another person, a very special guest whose name also starts with A, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Autumn is award season for literature and there is no bigger award in the English speaking world than the Booker Prize for Fiction. Whether you love or hate the long list, short list and the final winner, it is the topic of the season. So this year when the shortlist was announced, we were very excited to see Dubai resident Avni Doshi on the list with her <laughs> debut novel, Burnt Sugar, a story of a fraught mother-daughter relationship in the shadow of dementia set in contemporary India. And we are even more excited to have her here with us today. Welcome, Avni. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I want to start by asking you, Uh, on behalf of Andrea, what does your mom say about the book? (laughs) Um, So my mom, when the book first came out, she had, you know, kind of a negative reaction because she thought she, well, she didn't know what the book was even about at that time. She hadn't read it. So she kind of was a bit upset and she said, oh, everyone's going to think it's about me and it's about our relationship. And you know, you always wanted the chance to tell everyone in the world what a bad mom I am. And it was like a whole conversation like that. And I said, please just read the book and then you can tell me if you're mad. Um, So then she finally read the book and she saw that actually it looks nothing, it looks nothing like our lives. Um, And that it's kind of impossible to really think it's about Um, me and her so I think she felt a lot better about it and she actually really enjoyed the book too so so that was good I'm very very proud of you right now I'm sure (laughs) it is I think she's excited yeah both my parents they've been really sweet really supportive I'm sure they are well well for anyone who hasn't read the book yet I'd love if you would do a little bit of reading from the very beginning just a couple of pages sure um i've marked two sections at the very beginning so you don't really need any background i would be lying if i said my mother's misery has never given me pleasure i suffered at her hands as a child and any pain she subsequently endured appeared to me to be a kind of redemption a rebalancing of the universe where the rational order of cause and effect aligned but now I can't even the tally between us. The reason is simple. My mother is forgetting. And there is nothing I can do about it. There is no way to make her remember the things she has done in the past. No way to baste her in guilt. I used to bring up instances of her cruelty casually over tea and watch her face curve into a frown. Now she mostly can't recall what I'm talking about. Her eyes are distant with perpetual cheer. Anyone witnessing this will touch my hand and whisper, enough now, she doesn't remember, poor thing. The sympathy she elicits in others gives rise to something acrid in me. Sometimes I refer to Ma in the past tense, even though she is alive. This would hurt her if she could remember it long enough. Philip is her favorite person at the moment. He is the ideal son-in-law. When they meet, there are no expectations clouding the air around them. He doesn't remember her as she was. He accepts her as she is, 
and is happy to reintroduce himself if she forgets his name. I wish I could be that way, but the mother I remember appears and vanishes in front of me, a battery-operated doll whose mechanism is failing. The doll turns inanimate, the spell is broken. The child does not know what is real or what can be counted on. Maybe she never knew. The child cries. I wish India allowed for assisted suicide like the Netherlands, not just for the dignity of the patient, but for everyone involved. I should be sad instead of angry. Sometimes I cry when no one else is around. I am grieving, but it's too early to burn the body. Wow. We were talking bef- just before you come on, uh, Avni, with Annabelle about like how gifted you are with the way that you write and you, you have such a way with words. But I have to say the voice, your voice is amazing too. When you read it, I almost, I feel like you should record the audiobook in your own voice. Are you thinking about doing that? You know, no one has asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if my editor is like my voice as much as you do. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I would be open to doing it. I think in the UK, um, for example, they wanted someone with a British accent for, you know, for the UK audience. I think it's probably easier um, maybe to sell the audiobook that way. Mm. But maybe for the US, the book is coming out in the US uh, in early 2021. Again, they haven't asked me yet, so. <laughs> well, we've put it out there now. So if it does happen, you heard it here first on the Boundless Book Club. <laughs> One of the things that I was thinking of, obviously, when you when you open the novel, it opens quite strongly with the whole dementia side of things and this theme of, of memory and how reliable or unreliable it can be. It's more than just the mother's forgetting I was also questioning Antara's memory throughout as well. And I, and I was picking up on things where Dilip would confirm something that her mother had said rather than her perspective of the event. And I just wondered how much of that was intentional when you started out. Like, did you intend for the one to be the reliable narrator was Antara? Or were you trying to say that you can't really trust anybody in the story? Yeah, I think memory is by its nature unreliable. And uh, we're all kind of co-creating memories and we um, return to our memories collectively, you know, together, you know, with our loved ones, with our friends, we get together and remember certain instances from the past. And through what, you know, our friends and family remember, that again, um, kind of repositions or shifts our own memories. And there's a kind of rehearsal of memory that takes place, but that is also kind of infused um, with what others remember. And, you know, I could probably tell you a complete lie and keep insisting that it was true, you know, from the first time that we met. And over time, I think you that, that would actually become part of your um, memory as well, part of the way you remembered that incident. And another thing that I was thinking of, uh, which is kind of unrelated, is that trauma and, you know, pain affects the way in which we remember. So Mm -hmm. in the case of Anthara, she has experienced um, a kind of deeply traumatic childhood. Um, You know, her mother and her father are divorced and her mother takes her away from her father's house and they kind of 
you know, she's kind of shunted around first uh, in an ashram, which is a sort of terrifying experience for her. And then there's a boarding school experience, I think, which is equally difficult. And I think through these different experiences, she has to survive and she has to kind of have a form of amnesia really in order to make it to the next day and in order to be able to um, continue on. And, and so I think especially with children, but also you see it with adults as well, it, it's, it's a form of survival really um, is to kind of edit one's memory and uh, reconfigure, you know, what we think about when we think about the past. So I was looking at memory in all of these different registers. I wasn't purely thinking about um, memory in terms of amnesia, uh, in terms mm. of dementia, rather. It was kind of thinking about it as it affects all the different characters in the book. And and one thing that's that that um, while we're talking about memory, that the first memory that Antara has in the ashram, that scene really stuck with me. When you go into the mind of Antara and she's explaining her surrounding as a little girl and what the ashram is like for her, what what made you choose that that setting and what made you choose the ashram and storyline as a part of the book? Yeah, the ashram. I think you know. I I I said this in other interviews, but I think it should be repeated, is that the ashram, I wasn't keen on recreating the ashram or any ashram as it um, actually exists. For mm -hmm. me, the ashram was part of Antara's reality as a child. And now, you know, what does it look like for a child to go to this place where, you know, they you know, she didn't know anybody. She was um, the only child there and except for another child who was being abused. And, um, you know, she's surrounded by complete strangers who are acting sort of crazy in a way that's completely unfamiliar to her. They seem to almost be transforming into animals. And, and so it's really disconcerting for this child. And I was interested in thinking about the ashram in those terms. What, what does the ashram look like from a perspective of fear? Uh, what does, how, how is an experience of the ashram transformed through the lens of anxiety? So these were the ways, th these were the different things that were in my mind as I entered the scene and as I began to write. Now, I'm sure that a lot of people will say, you know, but this isn't exactly what an ashram looks like, and this isn't really a, a very realistic, maybe, interpretation of it. But I think when you're considering um, any place from the perspective mm -hmm. of a scared child, what does that look like? I mean, everything, every, is everything exaggerated? You know, does everything kind of take on um, a, a different sort of tension? Um, does everything have kind of the patina of, of a nightmare, you know, in a way? So those, those things were all in my mind when I wrote that scene. And um, another thing I was thinking about is that memory, you know, that's the only scene in the novel that's actually told. It's a scene from the past, but I use the present tense to tell that scene. And the reason I made that decision is because I really wanted to create a sense of immediacy 
mm. not only for the reader, but to also put across the fact that even when Antara herself remembers that scene, it's with a terrifying kind of immediacy, you, you know, that still um, creates anxiety in her and that still, you know, puts fear in her heart. So those were all kind of decisions I made in the writing process to kind of get certain um, feelings, certain emotions and certain affect across to the to the reader. Well, that explains why I felt incredibly anxious when I was reading that section. <laughs> it's it's so, so well written. I mean, mm. the entire book, but that chapter, like you're just there, you're in that little girl's mind and experiencing what she's going through with the same fear and horror of, of what's in her surrounding. And, you know, and there's, there's a lot of situations like that, which she was put through uh, throughout her life and and it's always sort of goes back to her mother's decisions or the the choices that her mother made for her when she was a little child and so if you could talk a little bit about Antara now as a grown woman in this situation you know before her mom starts to lose her memory obviously she has all this resentment and you know all these bad memories from her childhood from her and then now her mother's losing her memory what does Antara feel in this transition is she starting to feel sorry for her why is she so keen on looking after her what is her experience you know I this reminds me um I had a I had a kind of moment I guess when I was in high school and I remember I, I was doing an independent study with a teacher um, a really, really brilliant English teacher named Freemi Sagan, who's um, now passed away. But we were reading Portrait of a Lady. I was doing an independent study about Henry James. And so we were reading several of his, of his novels over the course of the year. And we came to the end of Portrait of a Lady. And um, I remember uh, Mrs. Sagan asked me, why do you think Isabel Archer returns to her marriage. You know, she's she's so unhappy, she's so miserable, and she's run away. But why does she return? And you know, I, like being this kind of modern, you know, child, immediately said, oh, it's, it's a kind of masochism. And I remember my teacher, she kind of laughed, and she was like, that's interesting. She said, yeah, I guess it's a possibility. And I said, why, you know, what's your answer? And she said, it's because she wants to be good and it's important for her to be good and for and what does being good mean it means being thought of as good by society at large um by the voice inside your own head you know and and that really stuck with me and i think to some degree i believe that's a kind of um reason for the way most of us act uh, throughout our lives. And for Andhra, I don't think she's an exception to this. I think she wants to be good. I don't think she wants to be evil or cause pain or destroy um, any further, you know, I think she's experienced a lot of destruction in a way. And I think she has um, a desire to be good. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of why in one, in one respect, I think um, she wants to now turn the tables and look after her mother and maybe have a change in their relationship. You know, there's another side to that though. I think it's hard when you've always been a powerless child to suddenly uh, 
now be in a position of power with your parent. And so what does that look like? You know, I think, um, I think revenge is also a powerful uh, desire. Uh, I think it's a powerful motivation. And so I, I think revenge also simultaneously exists there, you know, alongside her desire to be good. And those two emotions um, kind of cycle back and forth throughout the novel. That desire to be good uh, aspect that you just mentioned reminded me of that conversation that Dilip and Antara are having about whether or not to have a child. Because that really, really stuck with me. I think when she asks him about, you know, why? And he says something like, because it's what people do. Some, some, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but I mean, it really stuck with me that that would be, that would be the reason why, because it's expected, because it's what people do. Because I just, I, I expected Dilip to say, I don't know, because I had this picture of him in my mind, something really moving about really wanting a child. You know, I, I want to say something a little controversial, and I have two children, so this is going to be very controversial, maybe. But um, most conversations I have with friends or family or anybody, and you know, if if, I, if it really comes down to the question, you know, and I, I get to, I get a chance to ask them, why do you want to have children, or why did you decide to have children? There's often an, a kind of implicit sense, or or, or kind of an undertone to the whole d discussion where I really get the feeling that that's their answer, you know, mm. that it's because that's what everyone does, or that's what, you know, that that's what I should be doing. And this is not to say that, you know, people don't want children or they don't have any desires to have children. But I think if you really ask for a reason, um, people are hard pressed to give you reason very often and that's been my experience so maybe that's how it also found its way a little more directly into the novel and it's and it's interesting Annabelle you say that because Avni you and I have had this discussion about people telling you what what resonates with them and it's very different with very different people like what Annabelle just said it wouldn't have crossed my mind at all in the book but then there's other parts that really resonate with me so can you tell us a little bit about what are the different things that resonated with readers that was surprising maybe to you it's a very polarizing book so if i if i hear you know very kind of positive things about uh, one part of the book, I often hear also very negative things about the same part. So it's not surprising to me, but one thing that that, that really struck me was um, how people reacted to Dilip, actually, uh, to the husband character, because, you know, some people really liked him and they thought he was just this great guy and so balanced and so supportive. And, you know, and I guess he, he can be read as that. Um, and then other people, they, they took something totally different from his character. They found him really bland. They found him to be kind of, you know, he had this kind of um, undertone of like religious, religious extremism to him. Um, he was, you know, some people said, God, he's really having a kind of identity crisis, isn't he? He's, you know, um, digging so deep into his past to try and find some way in which to belong and he's unable to do it. So he's one character I was really surprised because I think people got a lot of different things from him. And he's definitely one of those characters where I think his, the way people, um, respond to him says so much about 
about the individual themselves, you know? What else? Let me think there. I mean, there are a lot of parts. Um, I think a lot of people found the boarding school sections very difficult, you know, the the kind of trauma she, uh, the main character experiences in boarding school. I think that was difficult for a lot of people. Mm. And another thing, the character, you know, she experiences a, a kind of, you know, a bit of postpartum depression as well. Um, I hope I'm not giving too much of the novel away, but <laughs> I did a book club. I actually, a, a group of people here, they read the novel for their book club and they invited me to come and speak. And it was a really great experience. Um, and it was wonderful to hear all the different perspectives and answer questions about the book. But one thing that really struck me was, how, and it was a group of women, and all of them were really stunned and kind of, there was even kind of a, a sort of a feeling of repugnance when we discussed postpartum depression. Mm. And um, I was really surprised by that because it's, it's a very common thing that, you know, afflicts many women after they give birth. And I think most of the women in that group were, were mothers. So I, I wasn't sure what, was disturbing about it. But I, I suppose that um, maybe it's really not discussed enough and maybe there's still a lot of stigma around uh, conversations about mental health, especially when it has to do with motherhood um, and children. So that was an, another kind of interesting uh, section that people had varied responses to. Thinking of a particular part, or um, was there something that you, that what really resonated for you? The scenes with the parents were very triggering. Like I, I, I found those to be the most intense scenes and the relationship with the mother, you know, and, and it's very, and it made me wonder as well, like, you know, because I've read a lot of your interviews and, you know, I know that you have a, a good relationship with your own mother and it's not necessarily out of personal experience that you're... <laughs> that you write this and it's, you know, you, you, you write it in such detail with such insight that it makes you wonder like, where does that even come from, from someone who themselves has, you know, isn't in that situation or is, has a, has a good, good relationship with, with their parents. And it's, you know, I, I feel like I learned a lot about complicated relationships from reading this book and I know it's fiction, but, but I just feel that way. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, such a nice thing to hear. Thank you so much. I think um, one of the ways I like to write into some of those scenes is, you know, you can even take a moment that really happened. Like I could even mm -hmm. take maybe an, a, a small argument with my husband. And then if I just kind of sit with that for a while and kind of try in my mind to take it deeper and deeper and deeper and see where it goes, and when I say deeper, I don't necessarily mean to get more kind of, um, to, you know, to get deeper into the argument itself, but kind of move, move to a more essential place um, and kind of pare down the fight. What is the fight really about? Is it about, is it a power struggle? Is it about um, trust or is it about, you know, whatever it's about. And I find as you move, as you pare things down and kind of mm -hmm. take away, you know, I think we all add um, a bit of 
we all add a bit of surface material to things when we have fights. And if you start to really strip that away like you would, or even peel it away like you would an onion, um, I think you get to these kind of essential core issues. And then I take those issues and, and build on top of those in a different way, in a way that kind of makes more sense to my character. And so then I feel I've actually hinged this kind of fictional moment on something true. Yeah. So it's kind of a, it, it's kind of a whole activity of paring down and rebuilding, which I find is really useful when you're trying to get at, um, when you're trying to really get to the heart of, of what we fight about as people. Yeah. There was one particular line as well, you know, Ahlam, you were talking about the, the parent-child relationships being what resonated with you um, really strongly. The, the bit where she says, and even now when I'm without her, when I want to be without her, when I know her presence is the source of my unhappiness, that learned longing still rises, that craving for soft white cotton that has frayed at the edge. And that last bit, the bit about the cotton and also the Indian title, I just found in the book, there were all these constant references to, to fabric. And I was looking through book news the other day and I saw your personal essay on, um, on your relationship with clothing and your wardrobe identity crisis from becoming pregnant. And there was this really great line, I wanted my clothes to seem thoughtful, intellectual, selected by a woman who is in possession of herself. So I was just wondering, all these attentions to detail in terms of fabric and clothing coming up in the book, like, is that, is there a line that you can draw from like those sample sales in New York <laughs> <laughs> to what you were covering in the book or? I think, um, and you know, nobody would know this today by looking at me or if you just saw me walking down the street in Jumeirah, you would never know, but I, loved clothes for a very long time. I was absolutely obsessed, as, as you might be able to tell from that article. I, I really spent so much time thinking about what I was going to wear, how I was going to present myself, thinking about not only clothes, but like the language around clothes, how to describe clothes, how, you know, so there was this um, link, I guess, a bridge in my mind to some degree between uh, garments and language and, and I think that's really stuck with me to some degree I think also my training in art history has had a bit to do with it because I spent so many years thinking about objects thinking about the materiality of things thinking about surfaces and the making of things and also I realized through my research of memory in general, whatever reading I did um, before I started writing the book, and even whatever research I did into Alzheimer's disease um, when, when my grandmother first got sick, there were a lot of interesting analogies uh, between memory and fabric. So there were these, there, there were a lot of um, writers who had written about memory. They kind of, they kind of used images of fabric and um, the fraying of fabric to think about, you know, to think about the way in which memory frays as well. And, and I think a lot of similar language was used. Um, and even when I was thinking about white cotton, I had in my mind this, um, this image of, of the, 
you know, of, of the blank slate in a way, mm. um, of tabula rasa and how, you know, what is memory? Is memory a palimpsest? Is mem memory, um, are we born with kind of this blank slate and, and, you know, and then are, we're traumatized by the world we uh, are born into. And so what does that really look like? So I think, I think memory and fabric kind of worked together, um, as images and as themes. Uh, and I found that to be kind of a very generative way of thinking about each of them. I, I love the way that your brain works. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, like in my mind, when I hear you talk, I'm like, this woman has two very young children. <laughs> I'm like, how do you find the mental capacity to let your mind go to that place? It just feels like you have so much going on, but it's amazing that you are, are still able to think in that way, but also articulate so well. I guess, you know, that's where um, the Booker Prize merit comes from. <laughs> you know, I, I don't feel very articulate these days. I feel um, like my brain has been eaten away. I think just, you know, I've heard that when you have children, you kind of lose 30% of your brain. Hence my question. <laughs> so I definitely feel, I, I, I think I was sharper before. I definitely feel a bit, you know, but I'm drinking my fish oil and I'm having plenty of caffeine. So I'm trying to build it back. Uh, in <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, a, you know, but I have days when I forget completely, like, like I'm having a moment right now speaking to you both. Maybe it's just the fact that there's no audience and it's just the three of us. But I have days when I almost can't remember what I did, how I wrote the book. And I almost feel like it must be disappointing for those listening because it's like, I can't really say anything too interesting or profound about it. And then I have other days when I get, when the whole process really comes back to me in a sense, and I can mm. almost picture myself sitting there and what it felt like to write these different scenes and yeah. you know uh, the images that were in my mind and that the inspirations that were in my mind, even in terms of other people's writing. So it, it really depends. I think, you know, I have good days and then I have days when I feel like I have amnesia almost. So. <laughs> well, if this is one of your bad days, that God help the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just like, I can't be profound today. What? <laughs> And this is like the third conversation I've had with Avni, in-depth conversation about her book. And every time it's a completely different conversation, which is why it's blowing my mind even more. So I'm going to ask a really annoying question. I know that obviously everyone's talking to you about burnt sugar and that's the real focus right now. But I've spoken to other authors in the past and, you know, the media circuit is about one book and they're already like thinking about the next one. So where are you at with your next project? Well, luckily for me, or unluckily, uh, I'm not too far along on my next project. So it's actually been okay uh, to keep returning to burnt sugar. It is quite difficult, though, to talk about, I, I now have a new kind of like sympathy for, you know, authors who do this, because it is kind of difficult to return to the same topics again and again and kind of bring a freshness to them. So I, I've been maybe struggling with that a little bit. Um, just trying to figure out, you know, new ways of discussing things or approaching things. And then at the same time, like hopefully not completely contradicting myself, um, although I might be completely contradicting myself. <laughs> although some people have told me, you know what, just say what you want, it's fine. Like just 
make, or make something up sometimes. That's fine too, you know, uh, keep it interesting. And I guess that's true. It, it, you know, it has to still remain enjoyable for you. So I guess that's probably the thing I should keep in mind is like, try to keep it enjoyable. I'm just wondering how many lies has Avni told us today? (laughs) (laughs) Avni, so tell us about when you got long listed for the Booker Prize and how did you hear the news? How did it feel? This was a seven year process you were writing this book. So, you know, a little bit about the journey and then when you got to the prize, what was it like? Uh, So it was a long and hard journey, as I I think I've said way too many times. Um, I hope I'm not turning this into some kind of like a myth about this long, hard journey. But yeah, it was, I mean, it was seven years, which is a long time. Um, And there were so many times when I quit, when I said, I'm just not going to do this. I'm not meant to be a writer. I'm not any good. And I really, I mean, I wasn't any good. Like even, you know, now people say things like this book is so brilliant or it's amazing, but I have a lot of really bad drafts. And so I think that's something to remember, you know, for anybody who's listening, who wants to write a book and who feels, oh, you know, I'm not so happy with what I've written thus far. It doesn't matter. Like keep working. You can improve it. Everybody writes bad drafts, everybody. Um, so yeah, I just, I really struggled with self-confidence. Um, I had a kind of imposter syndrome the whole time thinking, you know, only smart people write books. I'm not smart enough. And I'm also kind of afraid of rejection. So I didn't want to go through the process of being rejected, but I kind of had to muster the courage to tolerate that as well. So it's hard. I, I think, you know, anytime you make a work of art and then you put it out, out into the world for it to be judged, it's, it's kind of difficult. And, you know, seeing the book, you know, on shelves for the first time was such an amazing experience. I really thought, okay, we're not going to be able to top this. This is kind of the pinnacle of everything. And when my editor finally called me to say that I've been long listed for the prize, I just started crying. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't believe it. I just started weeping. And she, you know, I think was, it was just uncomfortable maybe for a few minutes. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't quite know what to make of it. Um, no, I, she was really sweet and understanding. And then when she called about the short list, I genuinely thought at that moment that, okay, now I'm just hallucinating. Like this is now you know, and, and she called on the phone and I didn't have an email or anything from her. So the minute we hung up, I kind of sat there and I looked around and there was no like written proof anywhere that what, that the, anything about the exchange was true. So I just said, okay, I've hallucinated this. And I didn't, so I actually didn't even tell my husband, I didn't say a word until I received an email. (laughs) I thought, what if I've actually hallucinated this? And and then I'll just be talking nonsense and spreading lies that, you know, and I'm not actually on the short list. It's just one of those strange, surreal moments that I think it just takes a little bit of time for it all to sink in. <laughs> but it's amazing. I, I feel really, really blessed. Um, I think I said to you before, Alam, that, you know, it, it's such a tough year with COVID and with everything. It's, it's a tough year for publishing. Um, there's so many great debut novels coming out this year and 
it's, it's just hard for new writers to get an audience or to connect with an audience when you can't do, you know, in-person talks and conversations. Um, and, and so I just feel really, really lucky. I'm really grateful. Well, it's, it's definitely well-deserved. It's an incredible book. And it's, it's available all over the UAE and bookshops now. And it's available in the UK and coming out in the US uh, in January of 2021. Amazing. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Avni, for being here with us today. It's been yeah, thank you. such thank a treat. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is the Boundless Book Club, the Booker Special with Avni Doshi. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be talking more about the Booker Prize shortlist in the next episode, so do stay tuned. If you have read, read any of the shortlist books, let us know what you thought, which one do you think will be crowned the winner, and let us know on comms at emerslitfest.com or send us a message on social media. That's it for now. See you next time.